listening to the Arise Church podcast. We are an Acts 29 church in Ventura, California, where we exalt Christ, embrace community, and engage culture. Find out more info or hear more sermons at our website, ariseventura.com. Thanks for listening. Hubbard wrote a book. I was going to try and not drop too much, but some of y'all already laughing. Okay. <laughs> Ron Hubbard wrote a book. And um, the name of that book is Dianetics, the Modern Science of Mental Health. By 1954, this new teaching had reached a viral success so much so that it went from a book to uh, a gathering to a religion. At the core of the religion's new teaching is the belief that salvation comes not through saving actions and especially not through salvation in Jesus Christ's name, but through the possession of special knowledge and special knowledge alone. It claims that the human being uh, is a, a, a creature, or more, not more than even a creature, a god, a little g, I'll say, who has these forgotten thoughts of what their godness and their godlikeness is. And so we need to spend our time ridding ourselves of these negative thoughts or, the, or, or, or regaining our forgotten thoughts so that we'd be able to get back to who we are supposed to be. It says that in the minds of each person, there are these negative thoughts from past lives, because of course the religion also believes in reincarnation, and it causes us to be irrational and to do compulsive things like believe or believe in things or put faith in somewhere else. And so the explicit goal of this religion is to clear these thoughts from the body so that knowledge of this godlike state can be achieved. And higher knowledge be attained. There's a central philosophy that disavows Christ and teaches members of the religion that Christ is one of many, many negative thoughts that you have to get rid of if you're going to achieve or attain your God-like status. You must clear your God consciousness. Well, this teaching is just a modern form of Gnosticism. We've been walking through the book of Colossians and talking about the fact that the Gnostics were unsettling the Colossians, and they came in with a false teaching that said, you must not believe solely in Christ. He cannot save you, but instead there is higher knowledge that you can find and that you can achieve by looking any and everywhere else. Gnostics, again, if you remember from a past sermon, we just talked about the fact that it comes from that word gnosis, which means to know, and the Gnostics considered themselves to be the people who know, especially the elite who had kind of a control on the teaching or the doctrine. They believe that people are saved by acquiring secret knowledge, which is only imparted to a select few elite people who have been uh, knighted or established as leaders. Paul's been writing to the Colossians saying, 
you, even though they call you a little old, forgotten about church, even though they would say that you're just a small, insignificant population. No, 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 no. You genuinely are children of God, and everything that you ought to know and can know is really only knowable in Jesus Christ. We've talked about that. As we continue our journey through Colossians 2, I want us to see that Paul actually now begins to be more explicit in his contending against that false teaching and in his encouragement to the Colossians on how they should engage with and or contend uh, with and against it. He wanted them to remember that they must keep their focus on Christ because it's all about Jesus. There's no higher knowledge, there's no one else, and there's no better way that Jesus Christ and him alone is the way for salvation. He didn't want them to turn away. Let's turn to verse number 8. If you're in a scripture journal, we're still probably on page 2 or (laughs) 3. If not, you're in Colossians chapter 2. And uh, we're going to be at verse 8, and we'll just go down to 15. There's a lot in here, and I want to try and simplify this. This will not be the deepest study that you've ever heard of these verses. This is just simple and hopefully practical for us. Colossians, verse, uh, Colossians chapter 2 and verse 8 reads this way. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ." having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Colossians 2, 8 to 15 is a sobering text. I think it reminds us of the battle that we're in, even though we may ourselves not have waged any war. It reminds us of our need to keep our eyes on Jesus and that there are going to be things and people and philosophies and teachings and doctrines and religion that try to cut in on that. And what we need to do is continue to prioritize looking at Christ. It not only tells us to keep our eyes on Jesus, but it also tells us what our mindset must be as we're engaged in this or as we even engage culture. And so to simplify this message, I'm really just going to walk us through this way. I want us to see three priorities for engaging culture. We say all the time, exalt Christ, embrace one another in community, and engage culture. Well, as we walk through these verses, I want us to see three priorities we've got to keep in view as we engage culture. I'm going to give them to us as we proceed so that it kind of builds for you today as opposed to rehearsing it, and hopefully it makes it helpful for us. 
Here's the first one. Right out the gate. Expect cults. Expect cults. If you're going to engage culture, if you are going to be the person who, on your job and in your community and in your home, in your family even, is an ambassador of the kingdom of God, a communicator of the gospel with both life and lips, that you live in such a way that Jesus Christ is supreme. He's preeminent. He created all and everything is created for him. He has first place, not just in creation, but in my life. If you're going to live that way, you have to expect that there are going to be false teachers that try and cut in on that because Satan hates the progress of the gospel. In our text, verse number 8 says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy. The first thing that Paul does is he calls out philosophy. In fact, this is, one of the, or this is the only time that that word is used in the New Testament, and it's where we get our word philosophy. The word is just philosophia. And what Paul was saying is expect that people are going to come, and they're going to try and communicate philosophy to you. Let me be the first person to tell you, philosophy for the sake of philosophy and philosophy in and of itself is not necessarily a bad thing. Philosophy is not bad. It just means that there's a pursuit of knowledge or wisdom. A definition would be the study of the fundamental nature of knowledge, of reality, and of existence. Paul didn't say you should be concerned about philosophy altogether. What he said, though, was that there's a measuring rod for how you ought to view philosophy and what you need to be careful for as you go. He said it becomes bad when it's empty. He says that it comes bad, or basically it becomes bad philosophy when it has nothing to do for or it is apart from Christ. Well, why is that? If the definition is just the pursuit of knowledge and wisdom, and we know that the Bible has told us that the fear of God is the beginning of knowledge, and the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. If we know that in, what did, what did Colossians chapter 2 and verse 4 tell, tell us? Or, or, or uh, from two to four, that your hearts may be encouraged, being knit together. And you, what did he say? He said, you'll reach all the riches of full assurance, of understanding, of knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. You're not going to find knowledge. You're not going to find wisdom. You're not going to find reality and existence or, a, or an understanding for it if you don't understand who Christ is in relation to his creation. And so Paul's first thing is expect that there will be philosophies that come across and expect that those philosophies will often try and push a cultish propaganda teaching that gives you some sense of I can achieve a high knowledge and I can go to the highest possible heights, even to the point that I myself would experience the fact that I'm a God myself. Expect that people are going to say that by trying to get you to not think on Christ, to not follow after Christ, to not understand that understanding begins and ends in him. Again, philosophy is not bad. It just 
when we decide that we're going to take. It's just like anything else. If you think about our faith, higher learning's not bad or, um, you know, counseling is not bad. I mean, you go down the list. There are all kinds of things, even psychology. You can borrow things like methods. I remember taking a class on methods, on problems and procedures, and we just talked a lot about what psychology would give to you. And then we, we took that and we mapped it onto, well, how do you move a person along in their sanctification through admonishment, Right? Through encouragement and exhortation, we, we, we took and we understood that there's a way to understand things that are naturally out there, but to essentially take the nuggets from it. It'd be bad, though, if I say, you know what? I'm a master of uh, a psychology, which means the study of the soul, but I don't think God has anything to do with the soul, so we're not going to talk about the Bible. We're not going to talk about Christianity. We're not going to talk about belief in Jesus Christ. I'm going to just go after trying to unpack what is in people's hearts. I pause there because as I get to the next point, which is escape captivity, I want us to understand that Paul wasn't saying all of it is bad, but he did describe it for us and help us to understand what it is we might, we might do when we engage culture and we are already in a place where we're expecting that cults will come about. Escape captivity, really quickly, see to it that no one takes you captive, right? See to it. He, he wants us to be serious about this. He doesn't want it to be a thing where it's just passive. He says, see to it. I want you to be committed. I want you to have a, this is an exhortation. This is a command. It's not something that comes as optional. He says, I want you to be absolutely committed to the fact that nobody would take you captive by philosophies that are empty and that are opposing Christ. To make or to take captive is really a word that means to make you a victim of a fraud. How, does fraud, how do people get frauded? How do you get taken over? Man, that, 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 that person took me. I remember it happened to my grandmother once, and it was a, a, a publisher's clearinghouse thing. She got in the mail, and she sent off some checks, and they went somewhere else because somebody had done something, and it was just a false. And she, she felt violated because she was taken captive, right? That's the kind of language he's using here. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive or makes you a victim of fraud by their philosophies. Well, then how do I escape captivity? How, how do I know whether or not the philosophy that's coming at me is something that opposes Christ? He gives us at least four ways. We examine the teaching. We look to see what is the teaching about? What is it telling me? And what is it comprised of? What is the first thing that he says about it? Empty. The way that you know that a philosophy is uh, something that opposes Christ is there's, there's no substance to it. Think about Jesus Christ and who he is and the fact that the next verses tell us that he fills everything. In him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him. That is in stark contrast to empty philosophy. Higher learning, whole bunch of knowledge that you could get that would cause you to just say, I'm going to empty myself of all kinds of other thoughts, and I'm going to come to the place where I understand not who God, the creator, Yahweh, and Jesus Christ is, but who I am. It's empty. He goes on from there and gives it another descriptor. He says, deceitful. Well, let God be true and every man a liar, right? God is truth. 
God cannot lie. Philosophies, oftentimes, they do just that. It comes to us and it gives us a whole bunch of, uh, of things that would perpetrate something on one side, and then on the flip side, it, we turn out to say, man, there was a hook in that. How many people do I have here who fish? <laughs> you cast out a line, it's beautiful, it's nice. What does a fish do? Squirrel right up to that bright, dangling thing because it's, it's bait. And the minute that it hooks on to the thing that seemed that was so flashy and it was so nice looking and it was so good and it was so, so, so captivating and seemingly best is the hook that pulls the fish up out of its atmosphere and to its death. That's what deceit is. It's not something that you recognize as a flat-out lie. If I stood here and told you, hey, I am a podium, you just laugh at me. If I told you something that you absolutely know is not true, it, not, it, it wouldn't be a moment where you said, oh, man, let me consider that. But if I told you things that you would not really be able to parse out if you didn't really take time to examine it, and not just examine it, but compare it over to what you know is concrete and true, namely God, the Bible, Jesus Christ, and what uh, God's done for us in him. If you don't compare it there, like it might be a situation where you get lured in and you get fooled. Paul says that that is something we need to see to it, that no one takes us captive by empty, deceitful philosophies. Then he says traditions. This just really is is a way to say uh, traditions of man or man-made tradition. Things that follow after just the ways of a man. He's not rejecting all tradition. We, we, we pass down traditions all the time. It's not bad to pass down tradition, but if that tradition, again, is empty and deceitful and it is opposing Christ, then see to it that nobody makes you a victim of fraud by it. Then he calls it elementary. Elemental spirits just means basic, rudimentary Things that are, are, are concerning the elements and concerning that which is tangible. You know, the Gnostics would also say that everything that is, is, uh, that is material is evil. And so God could not have come to the point where he created the world because the world's evil. So he's not the creator. And God could not have come and been in the flesh as Jesus Christ because he had a material body. And so he just continues to reject and break down. Do you see that? And so Paul, contending against it, says, don't let any make you a victim by what seems on the outside as high, superior knowledge is beautiful, attractive, but otherwise is only going to enslave you. This week I was watching CNN. I don't watch a lot of the news, but I just caught this and it was interesting. The headline said fish tank and it was P-H-I-S-H. You guys know what email phishing is? Barbara Corcoran, the, the shark tank lady, the investor who is typically known for making good investments, and she's got hundreds of millions of dollars. She always does, uh, you know, investments and wiring of funds and things like that. Well, this week, uh, the the news just said fish tank, Barbara Corcoran gets taken for $400,000. Did anybody see that? It happened because an email came through that looked like it was a part of somebody who was on her team, one of her assistants, but just one digit was off. And what it said was, hey, we're ready for you to wire over the money and we'll be good on the investment in Germany. You just send it to this account. And you know what her accountant did at that moment? 
sent the money. And only found out when he emailed back to the rest of the team to tell them, hey, I've just gone through with the transaction. And at that moment, everybody realized. Barbara's words are, I was taken. I was taken advantage of. That's the language here. See to it that nobody takes advantage of you, makes you a victim of fraud, takes you captive by something that just seems just like the real. She actually went on and said, I'm not getting the money back. There's no reason to even go after it. You would think a person like that just says, hey, I'll be able to sue or no. But she realizes these scams that are overseas, the money is gone. Bye-bye. And for her, $400,000 is probably not that big of a deal, right? How do you think she feels? Well, Paul's message is that we can only escape captivity when we expect that cults are going to come at us and we examine the content, right? And we, we, we examine the content of what they teach in order to escape captivity. But we got to be able to know what we're measuring it up against. And so he doesn't spend all of his time talking about the cults and the cultish uh, teaching. He doesn't even really name it. He just says, see to it that nobody tries to get you with the things that he knows is permeating them. And then he turns around and he gives them one final exhortation. The first one was, here's the reason how, or, or really, he gave one exhortation. Here's, here's what you ought to do. And then now he's giving them the grounds for it. The grounds for it, it starts in verse number 8 or verse number 9. Here's the point, exalt Christ. If we're going to engage culture, you have to expect that there will be cults and those who want to get in the way of the advancement of the gospel. You have to be a person who studies the word, studies Christ knows him for yourself in the context of embracing community. And the way that we escape captivity and we don't get made to be those who are enslaved by something that seems to be just as true as anything else, like the the rats and the mice that I've been trying to poison, giving them 99.99995% wheat, barley, and rye, and .00005% cyanide to their death? He says the way to do it is not that you go out on the street corners and you become a person who says, I'm going to pick it, and I'm going to become a street evangelist or apologist. You may do that. He says, no, it's to exalt Jesus Christ. Let's just read these verses quickly and see if we can gather from it. Again, not an exhaustive study, but for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Bodily is the first thing he says. Don't let anybody take you captive by some empty, empty philosophy. Jesus Christ has all of the Godhead dwelling in him bodily. He'd already told us that back in chapter 1. He said, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross, Colossians 1, 19 and 20. When he talks about fullness, he literally is saying max capacity. That God thought that it was the most uh, infinitely wise thing to do, to jam-pack Everything that consists of supreme knowledge and and creator, power, and all of the majesty into the 
body of Jesus Christ. So while you're being told that there's this empty philosophy that you can follow, the truth of the matter is, is you can't get any higher than him. In exalting Christ, he says that Christ had the fullness of God dwelling in him. But then what did he say after that? He goes on and he says, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. He's sovereign. He governs everything. And not only is he full of God, you're full of him. There's no philosophy that ought to be able to come and unsettle your faith because you believe in Jesus Christ, have been born again, and the Holy Spirit fills you to the degree that there's nowhere else that you could go and get a higher knowledge or come to some kind of gnosis that is superior. I imagine that some of us have gone to the beach and collected water in a bucket, in a, in, a, in a bowl, in our hands. And there's a way that you could go out there and grab a jar right now. You could fill it at the Pacific Ocean, right a mile and a half from us. You could fill it with all the salt water you wanted from the sea and close it up. That thing will be full to the brim of all that it could hold. That's us. It's not saying that we ourselves, like the Gnostic teaching would say, that you become a god and you are God in and of yourself. It's saying that all of who God is consumes you and fills you. Well, if you step back from that and you look back at the Pacific Ocean and you see it's full. There's no way to contain it. There's no way to capture all of the water that's out there. But if you get a part of it, don't you have it? If you were to walk away and say, I got this from Ventura at Emmawood Beach or whatever it is, and this water came from here, it would, be actually, it would be 100% precisely that. But would it be all of it? So Paul takes it way up above the heads of anybody who would ever say that God is, you know, they are God and they have no need of him. And he takes it to a spot and says, you, you've been filled with a God who is incomprehensible. Jesus Christ, though, was full of him. He was the entire ocean, and all, all, all of God's fullness dwelled in him. That's how you escape captivity. You have a big God theology, and you understand the bigness of who Jesus Christ is, and that he's not just some common teacher. He goes on from there, and what does he say in verse number 11? In him. Also, you were circumcised with a circumcision that's made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ. If you know anything about circumcision, it's a, it's, it's a procedure that those who, especially the, the, the children of Israel, were given this mandate, this command to circumcise your sons on the eighth day, and you must do it at this time and this way for these reasons to set yourselves apart. And so circumcision has been something that carried, carried on for years and years from there. But you know what happened? God had given that to the people as a shadow. God had given them that to sign or as a signpost to show them what was to come in the future. The Gnostics, the religious teachers who were unsettling them with legalism and moralism, were trying to tell them that you've got to go back and do some more stuff, including but not limited to be circumcised. But then Paul says, 
you've been circumcised at the heart. You see, to circumcise means to cut away. God cut away at our hearts. Jesus Christ has circumcised us spiritually to the point where he's made us new, and it is clear who we are, but it only comes by faith in him. It's not by outward things. We're circumcised by the putting off of the body of flesh, not, not because we have to go and, and massacre ourselves or, or literally hurt or harm ourselves, but because we no longer live for the flesh, but the spirit lives in us, and we progressively change into the likeness of Christ. Paul says, that was made without hands, and it was done by Christ. Then he goes on and says, you've been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. And so again, coming back to religious practices that they all knew, he's saying, the way in which you escape captivity is you realize who you are and whose you are, and you can look at circumcision, you can look at baptism, your spiritual baptism, where you've been united together with Christ, your literal in-time baptism. Some of you may want to be baptized. You may have a new faith, and we, we want to baptize you even in the next, I mean, we, we'll do it whenever, today. You just come forward and say, hey, I want to be baptized because I got a new life. And here's the thing, what he's saying is that that is a signpost to help you to know you don't have to go somewhere else. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Christ. And that has united you to him to the point where it is spiritually as unto death to your old man. But life, resurrection, remember the heading, alive in Christ. You got new life. He's still saying, so walk in him. He's still saying, therefore, right? Therefore, is since you understand all these things about Christ, understand more and more, deepen your understanding of the gospel so that you will grow in him and to be like him. He goes and says, you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all uh, our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. The record of debt, your debt, the record of debt, the law, it all stands against us. God gave a law because we needed to know and understand the law was given so that we would understand sin and that our, our, our minds and our, our understandings would be open to seeing why it is that we all fall short being created in the image and likeness of God for his glory and for our good. That stood against the people for years and years and years. And even to this day, that guilty conscience that you have is because built in is there's, there's, a, there's a mechanism that just shows you what right and wrong is from the time you're one or two years old. And what do our hearts always do? at one and two and three years old, and even all the way to today, whether you're here and you're 55 or you're here and you're 15, the reality is, is you find, just like Paul in Romans chapter 7, that the things that I don't want to do, I keep on doing. And the things that I want to do, I do not do. That is a record of debt against a thrice holy God who says that we ought not sin and we must. Jesus comes walking on the scene and he says that you must be perfect and your righteousness has to even exceed those who are teachers of the law. Well, what am I to do? 
Paul's answer is you are to do nothing but believe in him because God made you alive with him and forgave you all of your trespasses and he took it away. He canceled the debt and he says at the end of verse 14, he set it aside, nailing it to the cross. That's why it's all about Jesus because he canceled the record of debt, the debt that you and I owe. We are spiritually bankrupt and I cannot pay for my sin. You cannot pay for your sin. But then Jesus Christ goes to the cross, dies as a substitute in your place. And all you've got to do is believe in him who is the Lord. Surrender your life to him. Put your faith in the place, the only place that is sure, not in some internal knowledge, not in some knowledge of another religion, but put your faith in him and you will be saved because the debt has been satisfied and canceled, nailed to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. If you think about an army Their greatest weapon is a weapon. The weapon that stood against us, the weapon that the enemy uses against us is that guilty conscience, the sin in our hearts and the temptations, the lures and all the things that he puts out in front of us. There's even a law that's been given so that we just know progressively more and more and more that, man, I just keep falling short. And Paul says he disarmed the rulers and authorities. Remember, As we've been talking about, especially in Colossians chapter 1, when he talked about rulers and authorities, he said God created angels, God created demons, he created every one of the structures, he created the governments, he created all the politics and politicians. They all are in subjection to him. They're all under his feet. Let me not not skip over that. Let me make sure you guys really do remember that. By him all things were created in heaven and on earth, verse number 16 of Colossians chapter 1. And then he says, whether they are thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he's before all things and in him all things hold together. All things consist. He's the glue, but he's also the one who's sovereign and who sits over it and rules over it all. As the sovereign. Not with the iron fist that we know Christ will come back to demolish his enemies with, but this time with the low road down toward the cross, he disarmed the rulers. God the Father disarmed all the authority. God disarmed everything by doing what? The resurrection. The resurrection proves And Jesus Christ really was dying as a substitute. He really was God. And you, by having faith in him, genuinely do get eternal life. And there's no nothing else for you to do, religiously speaking. And you darn sure better know that there's nowhere else that you can turn for salvation. Paul says that the way that we escape captivity is we exalt Jesus Christ. And so he goes on and on and on about more theology of who Jesus is. I think for application, I think it's good for us to realize that this means that I, I'm, I'm not going to be able to get through this life if I just believe at one time and never think about fellowshipping with the, the Lord through the word, never think about fellowshipping with the church in community, don't worship him, and I don't want to put any feet to my faith. I just... I had a decision 10 years ago, and that's it. That's all I need. I'm good. 
Paul gives an exhortation and says, you need to see to it. I, I, I don't know how better to say that in our English language, but there are many things that if I told you, hey, you better see to it that you get there on time, you know what I'm talking about. See to it that no one takes you captive are Paul's words. And he says they're going to try to do it by empty philosophy that lies to you, that perpetrates something that it really is not. Our doctrines of men are traditions that are going to tell you that you don't need Christ. Very elementary things, which we'll talk about in a, in a future sermon. Let me close by just finishing my introduction. When Ron Hubbard started his religion based on those anti-Christian philosophies in the 1950s, he was wildly successful with drawing professing Christians and professing believers into his new age thought and movement. To this very day, unsuspecting people get lured in by the empty, deceitful, elementary, man-made traditions of the Church of Scientology. If you haven't noticed, which I didn't until Carlos told me, they just set up shop in our neighborhood. The big, beautiful building beside the 101, and they had a launch last week, and thousands of people came out to it, and it was a huge celebration. In fact, I saw it on ABC, I saw it on KTLA, I saw it on CNN. I mean, they made the news because of the launch just, re just recently. Yeah, there it is. And guess what? They caught a whole bunch of drama because they let balloons go, and everybody said, you of all people should know that we're supposed to protect the environment. But nonetheless, the reason why the Church of Scientology would be able to reach so far and so broad in our community and in other communities, first of all, it named itself a church. Second of all, people love to hear that they themselves are God and you can get to something. You don't need to believe in anything. You just need to go back to understanding your God consciousness. If we're going to engage culture, we need to expect big, beautiful, Buildings, temples, religions, false teachers, false prophets, and all kinds of things that will come up against it. And especially you, yourselves, if you're a person who says, yes, I'm on the front lines and I'm going to help to advance the kingdom and to communicate the gospel and to preach to people and to call people to repent and put their faith in Jesus Christ and him alone, you must realize that the enemy is putting a snare out there for you. And it probably isn't something that is just, again, a lie that you know right out the gate. It's something that seems to be just right. Oh, yeah. Feels good. Makes, makes so much sense. Higher knowledge. Secret knowledge. I read a testimony this week of a man who had converted to Scientology in his high school years. But later in life, he found some of the practices uh, of the religion that were hidden and, you know, that were behind the scenes. He found them troubling, and so he went kind of searching. And he picked up a book that was written by an ex-Scientologist that was titled this, Ron Hubbard, Messiah or Madman? Listen to a piece of his story. See if you can hear what engaging culture looked like for various people. He says, I recalled a high school teacher 
after I read this book, who had told me some words during my junior year, Ron Hubbard is going to disappoint you one day. When he does, call me. As soon as I finished the book, that clicked, and I phoned Mr. Dent at his home, and I told him what had happened and that I wanted to talk to him. He invited me to his home. And rather than talk about Scientology, and rather than talk about all of the false religion, he shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with me. And as he did so, my mind traveled to a similar moment when I was just a kid. There was a kind woman. Her name was Bonnie Olson. And she conducted a good news club in our neighborhood when I was just a boy and shared that same gospel with me. And I had heard the same message from one of the more conservative Lutheran pastors at a congregation in town. And for some reason, it reassured me that the same gospel had come from several different people from different church backgrounds at different times in my life. And at that moment, everything clicked. I trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ as God, and I trusted in him as the one who died for my sins and rose again from the dead. In his sovereignty, God had called me by his Holy Spirit into the kingdom of his son. High school teacher, just being a high school teacher, not preaching at a student, not Bible thumping as we might have called it, but literally just saying, hey, one day Mr. Hubbard's going to disappoint you when he does call me. Older woman in a neighborhood, good news club, teaching Sunday school lessons, Bible lessons, theology, and the gospel to innocent children in the neighborhood. Pastor, preaching the same gospel. You and I are called to engage culture, and this largely is not where we do it. It doesn't happen in these walls. It doesn't happen when we're here. And when we go out and God scatters us throughout our community, what we must realize is that we're going to encounter, we're going to come uh, into contact with false teaching. And it's going to try and captivate and take captive us and our neighbors, our family, our friends, our, our loved ones, and we've got to be the kinds of people who go in eyes wide open and can help people to understand that's not true because of who Jesus Christ is. That's Paul's point. You see to it that nobody takes you captive. See to it that nobody makes you a fraud. See to it that nobody gives you some empty philosophy, some teaching, some lie, some other traditions. There are many churches like the one we are talking about, and I'm somewhat picking on, that have church on the outside of it. Some of them are not even as clearly maybe recognizable to us as this is a false church. Maybe they have Christian in the name. They may may be practicing some of the same things that you and I are practicing on a regular basis. The reality is you're not going to know whether or not it's, it's it's a false teaching that's trying to lead you astray unless you know Christ and you realize it's all about him and you weigh everything over and compare and contrast by the cross. Is your teaching telling me that I'm loved by God because of the cross and that he died as a substitute in my place and the atonement satisfies my past, present, and future sin? Or is your teaching trying to tell me that in some way I've got to earn, I've got to join, I've got to be, I've got to do something? Is your teaching telling me that Jesus Christ was virgin born and he lived a victorious life, right? He died vicariously and he was raised victoriously? 
Does your teaching tell me that about Jesus Christ? Or does your teaching tell me that he was just a good teacher? The prophet Isa, I remember doing some evangelism, and I would always encounter that when I'd be talking to Muslims. They would always say, hey, we're not talking about Isa. He's, he's good. He's fine. We, we're good with him. But he ain't God. The call for us to engage culture is not for us to go out waving some banner and become crazy like, you know, we just think that we can take on the world now. The call is for us to deepen our knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's why we start with exalt Christ. The best way for you to engage culture is to exalt Christ. I'm going to be done here. I want us to close our eyes and just to think about the fact that we have a community in which someone could set up shop in such glorious display and have thousands flock to it, and God has called us to advance the gospel right next door. I'm going to ask for his blessing, and I'm going to also ask him to grow us, to teach us, to train us, to deepen our understanding of these things, because it's really um, life, life and death and heaven and hell depend on it, not just for you and I, but for others.